They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Fred Love here, is that true? I heard it's the Brooklyn way. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> it's the news. I'm Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And I'm Samson Yangwe at Samsway on Twitter. Hey everybody, this is Clint. I'm so sorry I can't be there, and I'm bummed to miss out on what I know is gonna be a great, phenomenal, amazing show. Me, my wife, and Baby J are currently expecting the newest addition to our family any day now, so I couldn't risk being out of town. I hope you understand. I'm grateful to all of you for coming out to the show and for the work you do in helping us try to build a better world. Shout out especially to the parents in the audience. Whoop, whoop. Holding it down. I see you out here after the sun goes down, getting wild, doing your thing. Special shout out to y'all. Have a great show, y'all. Peace. See you next time. I, 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 we love Clint, uh, love Clint. He, you're the first set of people to hear that they're expecting another child. So uh, sad that we can't have Clint with us, but we love Clint. And I'm Duray at Duray, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. <laughs> so we have, you can't replace Clint because Clint is special, but we do have somebody joining us for the news and it is Hari Kondabolu, who is a comedian, a podcaster, and Hari and I actually went to college together, which is crazy. Uh, he has a Netflix special called Warn Your Relatives, which was released last year. And he'll be touring Charlottesville, Atlanta, Athens, and Asheville in two weeks. Hari, let's go. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. So I feel like we're about to go on a, an emotional roller coaster because sad news, Clint can't be here. Good news, Hari is here. Sad news, starting today, Payless shoe stores across the country are closing. <laughs> I know people are like chuckling, but and there's a lot of nostalgia associated with Payless for me. Like, I feel like, where am I gonna go buy my child's patent leather church shoes <laughs> that are gonna get destroyed in a month? And so I'm not gonna pay more than $20 for them. Besides the fact that obviously people need affordable quality footwear, um, 21,000 stores across the country. Some will close at the end of March and some will close um, at the end of May. You know, I'm still getting over Toys R Us. You remember those sad <laughs> pictures of Jeffrey, the giraffe? Uh, Did Toys R Us actually close? Or was it I like a fake I don't know, y'all. I heard it close. We saw all the pictures. How, by show of hands, how we saw, saw the, the pictures of the sad giraffe? <laughs> so I don't know what gives. I don't know what gives. Somebody did tweet, though, that if you can afford it to go to the Payless near you, yes. buy up all the shoes you can, and take them to a homeless shelter, which I thought was a fantastic idea mm-hmm. and one that I plan on doing myself. So, Boom. yeah, make it happen. I was the, the king of the Payless Velcro, and I just feel like that's, there's going to be a generation that will grow up without that. There is a question of like, where do you, you know, you think about uh, malls, there aren't as many malls being built as there used to be. Like, where do people go for cheap shoes? Like, yeah. that is interesting. I know on the, did somebody say something? Martin's. Martin's? 
Marshalls. Oh, I was like, what is Martin's? I don't know Martin's. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I ain't never been to Martin's. Um, Marshalls. We didn't have a, maybe we had Ross. We had Value City. That's what we had. Value, I was like, you know Value City sells furniture, no, too. Yes. And then we had a, a Burlington Co. Factory. Burlington Co. Yes. Factory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They are more than great coats. Was it great coats or just coats? Was it great coats or just coats? More than great, more coats. Than great coats. Trust me. I thought it was great coats. Okay, okay, whatever. Trust me. Uh, but, but, you know, we covered on the pod not too long ago in the news section about how dollar store is actually the biggest threat to mom and pop shops, if mm. you remember that. And this makes me think about like, I'm interested in like what is causing, like who is getting the business from Payless, you know? It's, it's probably a lot of the online retailers, which yes. is the large reason why um, places like Payless are closing the brick and mortars. Obviously, you all have had some conversations with Amazon here in New York City. Um, and they went y'all's way and not the way of, of Amazon. So, yeah. <laughs> uh. So from sad news to more sad news, I am convinced that um, people are trying to kill the word intersectionality. Follow me here. Uh, Esquire magazine released a cover during the like 10th tortured day of Black History Month 2019. It has been quite um, a month, y'all. Let's be very clear. Black History Month has been like blackface, Liam Neeson, and that Esquire cover. <laughs> We're not batting a thousand this year. Um, but they released an Esquire cover that is apparently the first in a series following American young people. But the first one that they decided to use was an American boy. And so when you look at it, there's this kind of forlorn, middle America, white young man sitting on a bed looking, I don't know, torn up about the fact that Americans are actually calling white men out on their stuff. And the subtitle was like, you know, what it's like to grow up as a white boy in the era of Me Too and- Devastating, like, you know, devastating. I can't imagine. <laughs> this, this implication that white men are suddenly the most oppressed group in America was frustrating, to say the least, for folks to read. For the first time, we're gonna do a series about boys and your groundbreaking things to start with a white kid and how he feels alienated that things are changing. like. It, it, to me, this is kind of what they probably wanted. They wanted us to talk about it, yeah. and they wanted the, the fuss, and they wanted to be angry, and it's, it's, it's a cheap trick because there are a lot of stories that haven't been heard, and if I want to hear about white kids, I could watch, I don't know, most television. Yeah, <laughs> literally all of it. And, and so this is, you can clap for that, for sure. Um, and, but this is my point about it. So somebody tweeted, and they were like, this is a perfect and prime example of intersectionality because the author is transgender and the subject is a straight, cisgender, American white boy. And I was like, hi, you need to read what the definition of intersectionality <laughs> actually is. Not it, not Because it. it's not that. It's not the recentering of dominant groups. That's literally the opposite of what it is. They appropriated intersectionality? Yes. <laughs> They're trying to kill it in black history. We knew history. it was gonna happen, but. You know, it has been a petition, wanted to happen this month, though. There's been a petition to make July the other Black History Month. Listen. And something. I am completely okay with that. It's like, I me mean, to read I you. celebrate Black History all year, so okay. I'm good. Okay, Brittany. However. Okay. <laughs> July. We need July. <laughs> My uh, news for the week is about Colin Kaepernick. You're, you're familiar? You're familiar? Yes. Uh, first of all, I find it amazing in the last few years that really progressive audiences know the name of a football player. I find that <laughs> every one of my socialist friends that I've seen wear a Kaepernick jersey just <laughs> <laughs> But uh, this week, Colin Kaepernick and his former teammate Eric Reed they uh, settled their collusion case with the NFL. They'd accused the NFL 
of colluding. Collusion is basically two or more teams. I, I want to say eliminating a player, but that's a little too much. Well, essentially, yeah. <laughs> She's like, tell the truth. Go ahead. I mean, I mean, collusion is basically they agreed not to sign these players in tandem, right? They, they worked together to make sure they would not have a career. Eric Reed eventually signed, but far under his value. And he recently signed a, three, a three-year contract, which is he's getting some of the money back. But he, they clearly, because he was connected to Colin Kaepernick, didn't get what he was deserving. Colin Kaepernick lost key years of his career. So the rumor is that they settled for 60 to $80 million, right? Bags, and, real bags. Yes. <laughs> and the NFL likely did it for a couple of reasons. First, uh, they wanted the bad press to end, which if that's true, they are, they are foolish. Um, <laughs> and then the second thing is there must have been some kind of smoking gun, is the thought. Like maybe... Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> some emails leaked that says, hey, maybe none of us should ever sign him. You know, there's so- something came out. And the thing is, we're never really going to know uh, as of now just because uh, Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed signed non-disclosure agreements as part of the settlement. So they're not allowed to talk about the details of the case. And that's led to kind of... There's two sides to it, because some people feel as if that he sold out the movement by taking the money, right? And some people are like, now we can't continue going after the NFL, right? Now, all of a sudden, this is big piece of publicity. Like, he was basically this figure that was kind of martyred. Now that he has a settlement, that takes it away a little bit. I am on the end that believes that, you know, this wasn't really about the NFL or taking a knee or lawsuits, right? It was about police brutality and all these bigger issues that have been addressed since then. So whether it's the $95 million that you know, the Players Association got from the NFL to work in communities seeking justice, or whether it's the work Colin Kaepernick has done and all the support he's gotten, that doesn't change whether or not he got this settlement. Secondly, he sacrificed his career. He gave yeah. up everything. Yeah. He might have made much more than 60 to $80 million. Yeah. Yeah. And he sacrificed that because he believed in something greater. And honestly, most times when people sacrifice things, they never get a chance to get any of it back. Yeah. This is a rare example where it's possible. Uh, and also, it's proof that the NFL folded. Like one person and two people were able to make this incredible, large organization buckle, right? Yeah. And I, I think, think that's incredible. I think that's, I think that's the entire point, right? Right. I mean, look. When Cap didn't know if he was going to make any of that money back, he was still giving most of his wealth away. That's right. So this idea that he was... I know I made the, like, money bag jokes. I've been listening to Cardi B. But, I, <laughs> like, clearly that is not the point. And I immediately thought of Ali when he was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. And he, it was literally Ali versus the entirety of the United States government. And he stood up in front of that thing, proclaimed himself to be a man full of dignity, stood up to it, and won. And I feel the same sense of pride here. I recognize that the scale is different, but I feel the same sense of pride, and I'm hoping that because we recognize now that the NFL is fallible, right, that they can fold, that they can be taken on, that conversations about CTE and domestic violence in the league will be things that people actually begin to take seriously. You know, the only thing that I'll add is... uh, I'm curious what the smoking gun was because, you know, you can imagine these owners, folks who are so out of touch when you hear some of the statements that they've made, the way that they've sort of been caping for Trump for no apparent reason except white supremacy. And, you know, I I imagine whatever they had was really, really bad. You know, I'm hopeful that, you know, more details might come out, might get leaked. I don't know. 
Um, but I, I want to know because I think um, you know it's probably really bad, uh, and I want them to be exposed for it. I met Colin when he first kneeled. I get a text from somebody being like, Colin Kaepernick would like to talk to you. And it's like, I literally know nothing about football. So I'm like, who's Colin? You know, like, I'm like, <laughs> like, I don't really know anything about football. So I get on the phone. I'm like, literally Googling, like, who is, like, I don't know this football player. Um, we have a great call and I, and I know him. I was just with him um, two weeks ago because they're unveiling like a new jersey that's going to come out very soon, which is dope. But the thing about Colin that sticks out that I like want him to do interviews just so people can appreciate it is that he's actually like really kind. He's just like a kind person. So he called, the first call we have, he goes, Dray King, so he's like, we're talking about like issues. And he goes, I really want to meet, um, can you put me in touch with Mike Brown's mom, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and somebody else. So I'm like, okay, I can figure out a way for you to get to Mike Brown's mom. I don't know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> I don't remember who the third person was, but I literally, I call somebody else. I'm like, hey, one of my friends is trying to get in touch with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. So they're like, I'm trying to get in touch with Kareem. So they're like, oh, here's Kareem's manager's number. I'm like, cool. So I literally call call this woman. I'm like, hello, my name is Drew McKesson. I'm calling on behalf of Colin Kaepernick. would like to see Kareem. Like, real serious. To just <laughs> see and she goes, she's like, Colin needs to call in 30 minutes. We're getting on a fight. So I'm like texting Colin, like, please call this woman. Like, I don't know her. And it worked, you know? It was like a, but what is random. Uh, but what people don't know about Colin, but they should, is that like he still works out every day. Like every morning he goes out and like, you know, his friends like help hold the, whatever the football things are that you throw, the, like they, you know, <laughs> you know those like orange things with the whatever, um, his friends help hold them and like he really does, I don't, I'm sure they have a name, but you know, it is a, he still wants to play and like I asked him two weeks ago, like, are you still working out every day? He's like, yes, because I think I'll play again and like, that is real, you know, and like the Know Your Rights camps, I remember we had dinner once and I was like, oh, like, who helps schedule the camps? So he's like, we do. I was like, you called the venues? He's like, yeah, who else is gonna call? I'm like, Colin, can we like, <laughs> can we, I think we can help you get a team around you. He's like, no, I wanna, and you're like, he actually is just really kind yeah. and his heart is like in the right place. I do agree that like, there must've been emails or texts or something that were so damning <laughs> that, that made them fold, but it might be another way for us to get to that. You know, I'm not swayed by this players association money thing. Yeah, 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 I don't, you know, just like when Stephon Clark got killed by the police in Sacramento, I remember I was on the news talking about it and somebody's like, Dre, what do you think about the million dollar opportunity fund? And you're like, the lack of opportunity isn't what killed Stephon Clark, right? So like, yes, it's dope that there are more after school programs, but the police killed Stephon. So like having a new million dollar thing around after school is cool. That has nothing to do with like why he got killed in the first place. And I worry about some of the programming, like some of this 95 million, like I don't know if it's going to actually ending the things we know could end police violence. It's going yeah. to other things and people like don't necessarily understand that. So they're like, yeah, we should help poor people. And you're like, yeah, that isn't why they got killed by the police, you know? Right, and right, right. I worry Plus, about like, that. I mean, we've said it on the pod before. If we could program our way out of oppression, we'd be free already. Yes. Uh, Clearly that's not going to get us there. And I, I distinctly worry about the police community relations programs. And for the people listening, I'm using very vigorous air quotes <laughs> in this moment. And I say that as somebody who was on President Obama's policing task force and would have light people flex, sit Light flex, light flex. You, <laughs> you just, wait a minute, you just talked about a phone call between you, Colin Kaepernick, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and I'm flexing. Okay, you got me. You got me. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. Is that Brittany is nope. shady. She's not being shady tonight. She I, was shady I yesterday in Philadelphia. I will finish it. <laughs> <but I'm sorry. laughs> 
<laughs> I love you. I'm going to give you that um, one, though. That was, you got me. But, but we had folks testify in front of us, and their testimony would be 10 minutes of them talking about ice cream and basketball programs. And I'm like, I don't think Rocky Road like saved anybody's life, right? Yeah. And so I, I, we have to continuously press on these kind of feel-good moments where folks say we're committing money. Money to do what and to challenge what and to fix what? And we often say we never let the system off the hook, right? That programs are important, but we know that most programs exist because the system failed in the first place, right? Mm. So the reason why we need to feed a million people who are homeless under the bridge is because they're homeless. The reason why we need to teach kids how to read after school is because they didn't learn how to do it during the school day, that like programs are interesting, they can be proof points, but like we hold the system accountable. Yeah. Sam? Yeah. yeah, so my news is a new study that is coming from Evan Rose at Berkeley. Uh, it's called The Effect of Job Loss on Crime. So it's like no secret that crime and poverty and systemic oppression are linked, right? And that an absence of opportunity is often correlated with sort of higher crime rates. What this paper does in particular is try to tease out sort of the, the causalities, determining using data sort of a cause and effect from job loss and crime. And so what they do, they get data from uh, like millions and millions and millions of uh, arrest records from uh, Washington State um, combined with information on employment um, and unemployment benefits. What they're able to find is that um, job loss, so when people are laid off from their jobs, there is a spike in crime of about 30% over the next three years um, that people are more likely to be engaged in either uh, property crime, so like things like theft and like things that make sense if you don't have money, right? Um, and uh, domestic violence. Um, so I, I wanted to, to bring this to the conversation because you know, oftentimes we think about, you know, what are the determinants of crime? What are the like structural and systemic factors um, that leave people desperate, right? That leave people with few other choices. Um, and this is sort of a paper that uses data in, in a way that's, that's really powerful to, to determine that, uh, that, that relationship. It's almost insulting that people have to spend this much time right. and this much money and put this much effort in to prove something we already know. Right. I think that there's a part of, like, whether it's white people or rich people, this idea that like, poor people are poor because it's, it, there's some biological weakness. People commit crimes because there's some biological connection. It feels that you have to put so much effort to see, well, see, when people don't have jobs and they're desperate, you do what you can to survive. Like, it's like you, you have to do all this work to, to say something so obvious. I think about that every time there's a gala for a nonprofit and all these rich people are there <laughs> and they all know that the programs need money. But it's like, okay, we know you need the money, but sing and dance for us first. <laughs> Feed us for an hour. <laughs> Tell us how sad things are mm -hmm. and then we'll give you the money. An element of white dominant culture is that we prioritize and worship the written word. So people will explain to you their lived experience over and over and over again in the aggregate, right? In ways that research would uphold. Um, but you have to have the white paper, you have to have the abstract, you have to have the research budget to prove what people have been telling you all along as if they're liars and their humanity doesn't matter. So I think that that's a critically important point. The thing that really stuck with me, it wasn't shocking, but it really struck me, is that 80% of all the arrestees in this study had no income in the quarter of their arrest, like zero income, 80% of the folks who had been arrested, which just makes me think critically about 
the cycle of poverty and therefore the cycle of recidivism, right? If you are persistently living in impoverished circumstances, living in low-income circumstances, and there is no end in sight, then we're gonna keep this revolving door open. There are so many causes here, and if folks cannot afford to feed their families before they get in, it's even harder to feed your family when you come out. Um, and so we're just gonna see the problem continue to be persistent. And this is, there are many studies that actually explore this relationship between unemployment and crime. What most of them sort of conclude is that unemployment does lead to some sort of variations in crime, but can't explain it alone, that there are other factors. This is one of the first that makes this link between domestic violence, which I was fascinated mm -hmm. by, that like domestic violence increases. We've covered before that we are nervous about Obama phones. If you've read about Obama phones or like the FCC program that allows people to get phones because what we know about domestic violence is that what abusers will do, men will ruin the credit of women so that women can't open up accounts in their own names. And this program is one of the only programs that allows women to get phones like without having to go through the credit process, which is interesting. So always interested in like the way domestic violence, and there's another police thing that maybe I'll cue Sam up to talk about in the next piece of news, but domestic violence is like a fascinating underexplored area uh, of different policy issues. What I'll say, this is also a setup for Sam. Sam hates when I set him up. So this is about violent crime in the United States. So raise your hand if you think of the total arrests in the country, what percentage of arrests are violent crime? If you think more than 50% of the arrests are violent crime, raise your hand. 50, 50 five, zero. Uh, 40. <laughs> like, no, that is not She's like, answer. I'm not raising my hand you and I got a comment. Me. Okay. Um, 40 to 50% raise your hand. Well, she's intimidating everybody. Okay. <laughs> there is a number 30 to 40%. Okay. 20 to 30%. Uh, 10 to 20%. Uh, less than 10%? Sam? It's 5%. Wow. So now you've set me up. I'm just going to... I'm going to have to knock him down. I'm going to have to knock him down. Um, so, so yeah, nationwide, according to the Uniform Crime Report, only 5% of all arrests made in this country, of the millions of arrests made every year, uh, are for violent crimes. Um, another 12% of arrests are for property crimes. Um, and the vast majority of arrests are for low-level offenses. Things like trespassing and loitering. Selling um, loose cigarettes. Selling loose cigarettes. There are actually more people arrested for drug possession than for all violent crimes combined. Um, so when you think about like, who are the police arresting and why, um, what are they spending their resources actually doing? Like that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, actually addressing issues of like public safety and protecting property is like actually like an, a smaller proportion compared to this broader targeting people for low level offenses. See? Fascinating. <laughs> so my news is about uh, in Houston recently, I don't know if you saw, but there was a no-knock raid in Houston where the police uh, raided a house. No-knock means that they did knock. And they just barged in. They killed two people. They killed a man and a woman, and they killed the dog. And it was based on an informant who said that there was like a drug operation happening in the house. So that was like, those are the facts. Then what happened after the people got killed is they were like, we don't know who the informant is all of a sudden. They literally were like, we can't find the informant. We think that the police falsified the documentation. So the police chief publicly said that they're going to hold the police officer who filed for the warrant because he lied. And literally, they're like, we don't know who the informant was. So that is like the news. What is fascinating about this is that I didn't know there are over 20,000 no-knock raids that happen every year. And what I also didn't know is that no-knock raids, because you think about like, what would you even justify somebody like barging into somebody's house around? Is that to me, it seems like violent crime would be the thing, but no-knock raids actually started from the war on drugs. Is that the war on drugs is like where the legal precedent for no-knock raids actually yeah. began in the 1970s. 
And it was because people thought that like drugs were the worst thing ever. And the way that the police justified it was that they said that they needed not to knock because they needed to protect the evidence. And if they knocked, you might flush the drugs down uh, the toilet. And like that was cause enough for them to just knock. There's also something called a quick knock raid, which like, you know, if they knock twice and barge your door down, sort of, <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, same thing. Just like in New York City, which applies to you, uh, you know Eric Garner, who got killed by the police, is that in New York City at the time of uh, his killing, uh, chokeholds were banned in the city of New York, but strangleholds were not banned. Raise your hand if you think you know the difference between a chokehold and a stranglehold. Precisely. So a, ch- a chokehold is, re- is like your Adam's apple. It like restricts your airway. A stranglehold restricts your muscles. And we're like, uh. mm, I don't know. Like that all seems like the airway to me. So I brought this up because I'm like fascinated by it. The other thing that I'll say, and the last thing I'll say is that there's this question of like, why did the police like no-knock raids so much? And what the long game of a no-knock raid is, is that when they raid your house and they find drugs, they actually can seize all other assets that are in the vicinity. So it actually is one of the biggest ways that the police uh, interact with civil asset forfeiture and they can see is like the car, all the clothes, any money they find, any jewelry, like they actually can seize it. And what's fascinating about it is that in most places, the police literally can just seize the property and sell it and they get all the money. And that's how civil asset forfeiture works. So So. speaking of civil asset forfeiture, uh, another fun fact, the police confiscate, confiscate, steal um, more money and value in civil asset forfeiture. So taking your cash, taking cars, property, every single year than the total value of all of the property stolen in every burglary that happens. Really? Yes. So the police the biggest robbers of all? Yes. Yes, wow. that is a fact. Um, the, the second thing about this news in particular was that the officer, his last name is Goins, um, he had, surprisingly, a record of misconduct. Mm. Um, He shot two people previously, before this raid that killed two people. He'd shot two people previously, had a whole bunch of complaints against him, including complaints uh, by people who said that he made up information uh, to justify drug raids. So it was pretty clear that like he should have not been on the force in the first place. And this adds to like a growing body of evidence that's just plainly apparent that you know, officers that end up shooting people, uh, there are these patterns. You can predict who these officers are going to be. Um, so, for example, the Invisible Institute did a study of the Chicago Police Department. Um, they got data on like, all of the use of force by police, the complaints against the police, the lawsuits against the police. They found that over a 13-year period, from 2004 to 2016, 95% of the officers in the department did not shoot anybody. 5% shot people. But 130 officers shot multiple people, and 24 officers shot three or more people. Mm. And so they wanted to understand, that, you know, these officers who had shot multiple people, what were like the predictors? Um, it turns out they were much more likely to have used force uh, multiple times before that incident. They had more complaints against them. They had more misconduct lawsuits against them. Um, another study from Pew Research Center, they polled 8,000 police officers across the country, and they asked them whether they had discharged a firearm on duty during their career. 27% of police officers said yes. Now again, this doesn't mean they shot a person or they killed a person. They may have missed, they may have shot at, you know, like a dog or something. Um, But about 27% of those officers said they had shot at something while they were on duty during their career. And so demographically, surprisingly, those officers tended to be 
white, male, more likely to be veterans who had been in combat, and they were more likely to have views about race that racism no longer existed. So, like, this is not surprising to anybody, but, like, the data is pretty clear on what the profile of the officer who tends to shoot people uh, looks like. Um, and there are sophisticated, we talk about predictive policing and all kinds of data systems that are being used to target us mm. using all kinds of faulty data. Well, there's a whole bunch of data that is much more reliable that could be used to actually predict who these officers are going to be um, if the police departments actually cared about stopping these shootings. And if police unions didn't stand in the way of that, right? Yes. Again, back to the task force, I remember after we turned in the report, the White House, one of their greatest powers is the power to convene. And so the task force members that were able to come into town uh, sat with police union chiefs from all across the country at the national level. And, you know, we've done a lot of reporting on police unions, and, and I myself am from a labor family. Like, I used to belong to the teachers union, so this is not an anti-union diatribe. What it is, though, is clarity about police unions specifically um, and all of the ways in which they have consorted to block justice for folks. So we sat across them at that meeting, and I said, you know, have you all, like, what have you all done with these recommendations? And every response we got was, we did a presentation, but a lot of the things you're asking are too expensive. And I was able to, because of the research that we had done, pull out all of this data to say, actually, if you just change some of the regulatory policies in the departments that you oversee and that you work with, and you get rid of some of these things in your contracts, all of these things that you can do for free would actually dramatically change outcomes in your community. And they looked at me like I had a green face because they don't expect us to actually come with this information and require them to do anything about it. That's our job. Our job is to hold folks accountable. Our job is to say, you're not telling the truth. We can predict these things and you cannot convince us that the most extreme cases are an anomaly. They are actually far too common. If the police are robbing everybody, if we know who we can predict to kill people, if we know who we can predict to engage in civil asset forfeiture. If we know all of these things, then it is our job as taxpayers and the folks that pay your salary and give you any power at all to hold you accountable to doing something about that stuff. Exactly. I just, uh, just a couple of quick thoughts. First of all, usually when police do something like this, I assume they're going to be set free, that nothing's going to happen. But this time they killed a dog. White people like dogs. True. Fun fact, actually, the, the NYPD... You might be overusing the phrase fun fact. <laughs> and it's not fun at all, but it's, it's kind of wild to okay. me. Okay, so, so New York City, the NYPD's use of force policy determining how and when police are authorized to shoot people is more restrictive on when police can shoot a dog than a person. That's also a fact. Also, I wanted to, like, as you mentioned, Gerald Goins, who's the detective that was named in here, I just wanted to read his accusations because I think it's shocking. In this particular case, he's being accused of planting heroin, lying about using a confidential informant to conduct the buy. In the past, he's also been accused of multiple shootings, written reprimands. He's involved in several lawsuits, he's fabricating a drug deal, lying about it in a court to win a conviction. So, it's, so a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> But it's like every time I watch a Law & Order, I'm like, how is this guy still on the force when he's like committed all these crimes and he somehow gets away with them? Like, this is unrealistic. Nah, it's realistic. Yeah. That's exactly Basically how it works. Not real. Yeah. yeah. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue. 
panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor Meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So now we're going to bring out, we rarely have five people on the stage, but we are going to bring out our dear friend who is going to join us for the last part of the news. And then I'm interviewing him. It is America's pollster, Nate Silver. So... 
You know Nate because Nate is the founder and editor-in-chief of 538 and the author of The Signal and the Noise. You also know him because he's one of the only people who can correctly predict what's happening in the presidential anything. Um, so Nate's going to do his piece of news, and then we're going to talk about the presidential candidates, which we waited to do until Nate got on the stage, and then Nate and I are having Thank a conversation. So Nate, lead the way for your news. So my news is that on Friday, President Trump declared a national emergency... <laughs> there is a humanitarian <laughs> crisis on the border, the president claims, and he's going to try and find a way to fund part of the wall, to redirect money from other military projects to fund part of the wall. So this is not the last we're going to hear about this, obviously. For one thing, there are legal questions about whether this is something you're able to do or not. The emergency itself is probably not the controversial part. There's a National Emergencies Act of 1976 that gives the president broad discretion over it. However, it also gives Congress the power to basically nullify the declaration. So you'll probably have Democrats in the next week introduce a resolution in the House. It will pass the House and you go to the Senate where it's not like a normal bill where McConnell can table it. They have to vote on it. And you've had, by my count, about eight or nine Republicans who have said, this is a bad idea. You've had about 20 Republicans who have said, oh, we have concerns about this. And you know what happens, people have concerns about things. <laughs> Concerns means we want to vote yes, right? But yeah. after <laughs> <laughs> give me something first. But what probably happens is that it will pass the Senate and then President Trump will veto it and then you'll have an effort to override the veto that will probably fail, although not for sure, because there are like a fair number of Republicans who are who are more unhappy about this than usual. But still to get twenty of them is a lot. Um, that's what you'd need if all Democrats, including Joe Manchin, were to vote. Um, <laughs> Zing. Yeah. It's a very politically aware audience, obviously. Um, but yeah, you know, some people say this is a constitutional crisis. To me, it wouldn't quite be in that category because Congress does have the power to actually nullify this. However, legally, the question is, it's not the emergency part. It's that can you redirect money that Congress has not appropriated and authorized for you to spend in a way that, in this case, explicitly went against their intentions. And also, the emergency part, although the president's latitude may be broad, for him to like literally have said, I didn't need to do this, <laughs> might make it a little bit more dubious of a claim than, than you might ordinarily have. <laughs> um, so from my standpoint, this is kind of the latest in the series of actions where President Trump believes that by catering to his base, that that's the best way for him to sustain or improve, I guess, his political standing, which I tend to think is, is a pretty big mistake on his part. The math doesn't work that well if you're the GOP. Number one, there are more people who are Democrats than Republicans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not a huge edge, but when you are the party that represents a more diverse array of Americans, then that matters. So the question is, number one, can you get Democrats to turn out to vote in the same numbers as Republicans? And in the midterm elections you did, we had very, very high turnout in the midterms. We had turnout that was almost approaching a presidential year, and so the president's voters actually turned out in huge numbers, but Democrats also turned out in equally huge numbers, and there are more Democrats than Republicans, and independents went by about 12 points for Democrats in the race for the House. So when that happens, you have a condition where, where Trump lost and the Republicans lost 40 seats in the House. So it was a kind of a landslide against them. And so, and that formula, therefore, is like, I think not a winning one for Trump. And in some ways, it's kind of politics 101 where hey, look, a lot of presidents have had a bad beating at the midterms and then got, come back to win re-election. Obama, Clinton, Reagan. 
it's pretty normal in some sense, but usually presidents say, okay, well, we have to triangulate and try and find ways to appeal to independents and moderates and so on and so forth. And Trump has taken the opposite tact, and so it's, I think, not the best strategy. I think actually one thing about Trump is the fact that he kind of won unexpectedly in 2016. I think he kind of feels like he probably walks on water a little bit politically. And now Republicans say, well, you know, first of all, we lost a Senate race in Alabama, which a lot of things had to go wrong. The candidate had to be maybe like a little bit of a child. A pedophile? Pedophile, yeah. (laughs) But still, it's Alabama, and so it's always hard to lose. And then they lost the midterms badly in the shutdown. You saw President Trump's approval rating decreased from around 42% to 39%. It has since kind of bounced back to 41 or 42%. However, it bounced back? It bounced back, yeah. I mean, people are like... <laughs> the news cycle moves so fast now that things can have a fairly temporary effect, right? And he gave the State of the Union, and, and usually that can help presidents a tiny bit at the margin. I mean, still, like, you know, 42%... 41%, whatever it is, is, is fairly low. And people will kind of come and say, okay, well, there's this and that, and how can 41% of Americans approve of the job the president's doing? And the answers are twofold. Number one, it's a very partisan country. It doesn't need like that much justification, I don't think. But number two, ordinarily you would think a president in a time when you have an economy that people feel pretty good about, where unemployment is low and inflation is low. Historically, with economic data like that, I know there are people who are not participating in that economy as much as they might like, right? But still, when you have that data in the economy, usually the president's approval rating is 55% or 60%. And so these things actually do have a toll on Trump more than people might think. I'm one of those folks who is very clear that there are lots of national emergencies and what's happening at the border is not one of them in the way that he defines it, right? Now, putting children in cages, that is a national emergency to me. Separating families is a national emergency to me. The fact that we sit here right now and Flint still doesn't have any clean water, that's a national emergency. Gun violence, national emergency. Police brutality, national emergency. But not, I need to build a wall and apparently also like harm the potential for butterflies to grow and evolve in that area. That is not a national emergency. So I, like, I want him to lose that. It's so that that conversation can take center once and for all. Well, some people would say that if you have the courts uphold this, then the next president, who could be a Democrat, would say, okay, climate change or gun violence or a million other things are national emergencies, and now I have the power to reappropriate funds that Congress intended for some other purpose that's adjacent to it, but not quite like what Congress would have done, and now I can so find ways I to... you I don't want him to lose? I'm confused. It depends on if, <laughs> if you think the next president's going to be a Democrat, then maybe you think you'd want him more... Oh, oh we... <laughs> they better be... <laughs> We're going to talk about the next president in a minute. I mean, it is worth thinking, too, about the the structural elements here, where Republicans can basically run on a strategy where they are only appealing to a minority of the electorate because of the Electoral College favors the Trumpian coalition, right? If working class white people are overrepresented in the Electoral College based on where the swing states are. In the Senate, you obviously have each state, you know, there are a lot of states. If you go and count the states, <laughs> Thank you, there yes. are a lot of states. Like Wyoming has two senators and, and Idaho has two senators. It's a nice state. I like Idaho. Um, <laughs> both the Dakotas have two senators each. Um, whereas <laughs> all of New York, Math. all of New York has two senators. And so if you look at that, as, as the Democratic coalition becomes more, more urban and more college educated and more diverse, then that helps Democrats in more states than you would think, including states like Texas and Arizona potentially. However, there are a lot of white rural states in the Midwest and in the West 
that have very low populations but have two senators. And so that makes it very challenging for any Democratic priorities to, to really garner a large majority in the Senate. And can we I, talk about how wild that is that we're having to talk about accounting for the disproportionate representation of white people in government, the disproportionate voting power of white people because an institution called the Electoral College was created intentionally to preserve slavery back in the 1700s. Like that's why we're having this conversation. Only reason this even is happening is because of that, right? And so you talk about the legacy of institutional racism, the legacy of slavery, like this is it. Like these are the conversations that wouldn't be happening uh, except for that racist legacy. Now, I will say, this is the only time I've ever agreed with Ann Coulter about anything. <laughs> with her statement about Trump, she's like, the only national emergency is that the president's an idiot. And you're like, yes, that is true. <laughs> um, that last press conference was so bad. You were like, I, you know, I, they've all been bad. But this one, you're like, wow, this is really bad. And we, um, got, the, we got the press release on iOS notes. Right, you're like, official White House correspondent, <laughs> like, Sarah Sanders. You're like, Sarah really? Sarah Sanders is that? shares her news the same way an Instagram influencer does. Right. <laughs> Okay, now we're gonna do a lightning round of presidential candidates, then I'm gonna interview Nate. I hope I didn't forget anybody. Pete Buttigieg. I mean, there, there's this question of like, at what point do you hit the notoriety where you should be covered as like a major presidential candidate? I tend to give the benefit out to people who have held at least elected office before. So South Bend, Indiana, not a huge town, 100,000 people, but like, you know, I'd rather have him have a town hall on CNN than Howard Schultz, for example. That was good. Um, I interviewed Pete when he was trying to be the DNC, somebody at the DNC, like Pete, interested in his policy platform. Uh, next person is Howard Schultz. <laughs> I mean, my thing is just that I don't think he's very well informed on public policy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that no, was... I'm not, like, just, like, he doesn't, when he was asked, like, who was your favorite Democratic president in the past 50 years, he said FDR, which, you know, way more than 50 years ago, and also, like, <laughs> FDR would not like the Howard Schultz platform of, you know, winding down entitlement programs to keep the budget lower. I'm always interested in the people who say that they see no color. It's like they magically seem to hire no black people, right? They like don't see color, but no diversity anywhere around them. They're like, okay. Okay, next person is Castro. I mean, there are a few phases, right? I think there, you know, the first phase is can you launch your campaign and get a big boost based on that? I don't think he was one of the people who did. I think we could talk about maybe Kamala Harris or someone who did get that boost. But you are going to have umpteen debates. All of them are going to be live blogged on 538, right? And so... That was a good plug. So, yeah. So a lot of candidates have the strategy, like, you have to have, like, a viral moment in the debate at some point. And if you have that moment, then you can, like, gain traction. But, yeah, and by the way, the field, the candidates who have declared so far are very, like, quite remarkably diverse. There are, like, very few, like, straight white men in particular. However, this is interesting. Look at all the people who have not yet declared. It's a lot of straight white men. Biden and Beto and, and Bernie and Brown, all the bees. Um, but it's interesting that if you are like someone who is like, if you are a white dude, you can kind of sit back and wait and see how things develop. And all the candidates who declare early are the candidates who are people of color or women or gay. And so it's an interesting dynamic. Um, I'm interested in, in Castro. I, I, I do think he might be a sleeper. I think it'll be interesting to see him in the debates. Uh, let's go to Klobuchar. I mean, I'm from the Midwest, so I feel like I have to represent the Midwest and be like, we, it is the most important region in terms of winning the Electoral College. And so a lot of her arguments is from around like, look, I have always performed really well in Minnesota, so I'll win Minnesota, Wisconsin. 
Michigan, Pennsylvania. And so it's an electability case, I think, first and foremost. There are stories about her mistreating her staff. And there are stories like that about, about Biden and Bernie, too, for example. You know, I do think she's going to run on, on, like, I'm actually the tough one, right? I'm not Minnesota nice, but, like, I'm going to, like, tell it like it is and, like, kind of be, like, the candidate you want to drink a beer with. It's interesting because, like, this is usually, like, how, like, the male candidate runs, and she's kind of running in that lane in a different way. So I think her candidacy is, like, more interesting than you might think from, like, the, oh, here's a, here's a senator from Minnesota, and she has an accent, she's boring, right? I think she won't be boring. I'm not sure the candidate's going to work. But she does have a, a you know, I, I wrote our profile of her for 538. So she, her campaign does have, like, a, a strategy that may or may not work, but there is, like, a coherent sort of path there. I think, too, I'm interested with Klobuchar. I didn't realize she was a prosecutor. Like, I just didn't know anything about that. So it's like we've heard more about her throwing things at people than we have about her record. And that, I mean, the throwing things is not good. So, like, I'm not seeing that under the breath. But we should also hear about her record. So I'm interested in that. Uh, let's talk about Warren. I think she is someone who, as the party moves left, is someone who can bridge the divide potentially between the left and the Democratic establishment, which is something that, like, Bernie would have a lot more problems with, I think. And so, in theory, she's very well positioned to bridge the left and the kind of moderate part of the Democratic Party. I do think, though, that, look, so about 40% of the Democratic electorate is not white. So, um, Hispanic, black, Asian, indigenous, etc. You know, she is a candidate from a state that's quite white. She is white herself, or, well, okay. Um, <laughs> that was shady, okay. But like the question is, which candidates can expand their appeal beyond that just uh, Iowa and New Hampshire electorate? If it's not a candidate who is themselves a person of color, then it might be a candidate from a state that itself is a little bit more diverse or has a track record of working with more diverse groups. And so I do wonder when you begin to have that conversation, like what would people who are not indigenous but are black or Hispanic and are involved with issues of identity, think about how she handled that. It is also, it does seem sometimes like the female candidates get like one thing tagged about them and that becomes a thing they're kind of known for. I think she has like had a successful rollout in other ways. You know, I do think at some point Bernie is probably going to run. I do think at some point for one of them to be affected, the other one has to be kind of defeated. If you have two candidates um, competing for that same vote, then it's hard for either of them to rise to, to first or second place, I think. But she's one of the most interesting candidates in the field, obviously. I think that two questions that actually divide the candidates in the end will be, what is the role of extreme wealth? Like, what do we do about extreme wealth? And I think that Warren will literally set the tone for where we go in that direction. And the other will be, what is America's role in the world? And I think that I don't know who of these people right now will set the tone for that. But this question of like Israel, Palestine, America in the Middle East, like I think that that question will actually be one where people are very, very different in the end. Uh, let's do Cory Booker. It's a little bit unclear kind of which lane that Booker is running in. Is, it, is he kind of competing against like the Elizabeth Warrens, for example, on the left? Or is he running as like the more moderate, build bridges kind of uh, version of Cory Booker? You know, he is thought to be a good retail candidate, which means that like he might actually try to build a coalition in Iowa and so forth. And so I think he has like different strengths that are, are interesting. Is he, I think, top of mind in the field? Is he someone around which the rest of the field bends? I think maybe not yet, but you know, he'll be probably pretty good in those debates. And like, I think, you know, he actually has some supporters in Iowa and so forth. So he might be someone who's like not top of mind right now, but it's certainly one of the one of the viable, realistic possibilities. 
Uh, hi, my name is Marshall. Um, I'm curious what you all think about uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and her chances. She was someone that you all didn't talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kirsten is a friend of the pod, too. I mean, she is our senator. And so I think the awareness of her is a little bit higher here than it might be nationally. So she does have to like make more of an impression. That was impression gentle. That was very gentle. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, but she is something you talk about like a narrative setting in that may be unfair, right? She has a big narrative that I think is that, oh, she is too opportunistic, which is something people say about certain type of women a lot more, I think, than about men. Um, but it's like, oh, she was conservative when she was upstate and now she's from all the state and so therefore she's more liberal. I mean, you know, it is a representative democracy, so maybe it's like not the worst thing where, um, where you're trying to represent your, uh, your community overall. Um, you know, I think she gets uh, pushed back over, oh, she was responsible for Al Franken being ousted from the Senate. You know, I think probably Al Franken was responsible for that. Mm. Now Kamala. I'm of two minds, because on one hand, same issues regarding when she was a prosecutor, and also I, I have some questions about her views on Israel and Palestine. But on the other hand, she's half Indian, though. <laughs> she's half Indian, though. Do you realize what a big step up this would be for us? From We had Bobby Jindal running last time. Like, this is... I mean, half of, half of Kamala Harris, that's... That's definitely more than Bobby Jindal. <laughs> I'm like, I think she is the front runner, both in the sense of being the single most likely person to win, and no one's that likely when you have, you're gonna eventually have 17 candidates, right? And the sense of King kind of being like the center of, of attention for the time being. But yeah, I talk about like what narratives are setting around her. I mean, you see people kind of pushing a narrative now where, oh, is she the new, Hillary, where she's like a little bit too calculated, right? And like, she's not as good at retail politics. And you know, there was some stupid meme about, oh, she had a bottle of hot sauce now, right? And apparently you're not allowed to use hot sauce if you're a Democratic candidate, unless you want to be compared to Hillary Clinton. So like, I do think like, it would actually help her to have a foil. So when you have like a Biden enter or a Beto enter or whatever else, right? To kind of push back against them and push back against them probably from the left, I think could help her potentially. Because right now, I mean, I think she's done very, I mean, she is the one candidate who had an announcement and did get a boost in the polls, going from like 6% to like 14%. She's raised a lot of money. She has hired good staff. She has a big advantage electorally because uh, California is one of the first states to vote. In fact, early voting in California starts like the day of the Iowa caucus. And so therefore, like, you can gain a lot of delegate momentum that way. She should do well in South Carolina, by the way, too, and probably Nevada being next to California. And so, you know, she has, I think, the most robust set of options for how to win the nomination. But still, there's going to be the scrutiny you get as a front runner. I think she's dealt with it okay so far, but there's going to be more of this for like, I mean, this thing's going to last for like more than a year. It's really long and you have to survive multiple cycles of scrutiny. And so we're kind of really just in the, in the first inning here. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m. At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. 
Miracle Grow is simply the best. I live by routines, but I especially love my same day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Now I'm going to talk to Nate. So Nate, you've already talked about some of the presidential stuff. What is interesting about what you know about the polling that you wish more people knew? I mean, certainly like I think people understanding the role of probability and uncertainty more that if you have a candidate, for example, who's only ahead by three or four points, that candidate's going to lose the race fairly often. You know, I think people need to especially understand that polling right now for the primaries is in a phase where things are, are really, really uncertain, where the person leading the polls now, which I guess is Joe Biden, probably only has a you know, 20 or 25% chance of winning, for example. So knowing like when polls are more and less reliable, and also being able to like look at polls and where we don't just use them to like confirm the narrative in your head, right? We can actually kind of say, okay, here's what I thought about this, but if I'm looking at the polls, or looking at other types of data or reporting or whatever else, that like it doesn't match those preconceived notions I have. And so, you know, and so instead of saying, oh, the poll must be wrong, you know, it might mean that your preconceived notions were wrong instead. So people being more open-minded, I think, about like hearing news they don't want to hear, I think is important. There are a lot of people who have said, I've been in a lot of rooms with progressives who are worried about Trump winning again and have said that they don't think that America will elect a woman. Do you think that there's any data to suggest that that is true? I mean, a woman did win the popular vote, <laughs> you know, two and a half years ago. Yes, she did. I think women candidates face different challenges. This is a very Howard Schultz kind of answer, I'm afraid, right? <laughs> I think you face a lot of different expectations in the media as a, as a woman candidate. And I think it tends to make smaller scandals seem much bigger scandals potentially. You know, you get typecast a lot more easily, I think. There can be more concern about a candidate's like health and issues like that. And so if you go back and diagnose what happened in 2016, how did Hillary Clinton become so unpopular, then I think sexism is a big part of that story, potentially. You know, at the same time, if you look at what happened in the midterm elections this year, you had a lot of Democratic candidates who were women who did very well in Senate and gubernatorial races, for example. Those candidates often, by the way, often beat male candidates in the primaries. When you had a woman candidate, it's a man in the Democratic primaries. A woman won like two-thirds of the time or something like that. And so, look, I think it is like a disadvantage, other things being held equal. But I don't think people should like necessarily take it as baked in. They should say, okay, the disadvantage might partly be because people are sex, but also because like people in media 
treat women differently. And so people should, I think, be looking out for examples of where a candidate who is a woman or a person of color or whatever else or gay, where you see like certain stereotypes applied or the candidate is typecast and, and you know, should be pushing back against media coverage that they think is, is unfair or incorrect. Uh, do you think that Russia will matter at the polls or do you think that Russia is like a, an inside game issue? I mean, look, I think it's one of the reasons why Trump is at a 41% approval rating, despite the economy being pretty good, is because people do care about Russia. You know, I do think expectations have been set awfully high, kind of both by Democrats and by the White House kind of moving the goalposts and saying, okay, well, it's got to actually be like, you know, red-handed collusion now. Never mind obstruction of justice. I mean, of course, there's a little bit of obstruction, but like, who cares? What has to be collusion is kind of the narrative they're going for. And the way people get acclimated to the fact that like, just even the fact that he fired the FBI director is, is pretty crazy, for example, and kind of ushered out the attorney general and whatever else. And that he's tweeting about how it's all a hoax and everything like that. I mean, you get used to it after a while. And so that means that like, it maybe makes it hard for any one thing to have that large of an impact. But it's, again, there are lots of issues that are baked into why Trump is, is not very popular. And I think you talk about, like, you know, people wanting to read the polls. I mean, a 41% approval rating is not, is not very good. Can you measure the impact of the tweets, of him tweeting? Like, is there anything measurable there, or is it sort of like a wash? We tried to measure it a little bit, and it seems like it probably kind of forces things down a bit when he's more active on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's a thing where, like, there is like a correlation where when he like tweets more, he tends to be less popular, but it might be because things happen that make him angry. And it's the thing that makes him angry that both causes the drop in popularity and causes him to tweet a little bit more. I think it hurts him. I think it prevents him from achieving like a equilibrium where people see him in more positive light. Do you think that Obama's quietness right now is effective? Like there are people who say that if Obama stuck his head in, he'd be a foil for Trump and it would motivate his base and same thing about Hillary. Like, do you think that if Obama inserted himself a little bit more, which would be sort of unprecedented, but Trump is unprecedented in so many ways, that that might actually help? Or are you in the camp of like, he should probably be quiet because it might amplify the base in a way that we could suffer? I mean, look, I think Obama has a lot of humility to understand that sometimes when you're a president or an ex-president that you can move the needle in the wrong direction. Um, and there's a whole kind of theory of public opinion called thermostatic public opinion where like a thermostat, people adjust in the opposite direction of where if the room feels too blue, they shift it red and too red, they shift it blue. And so a lot of times when like Trump goes out and tries to give a speech, for example, on the border wall, then the border wall actually becomes like less popular potentially. And there are lots of things where like actually America by the polls is actually more pro-immigrant than it has been in a long time. People are more worried about climate change than they have been in a long time. Now, that's a long way from meaning that you can actually have a government that could do very much about it. More people in power, I should say, who want to do very much about it. But still, I think, you know, Obama's instinct that like, hey, you got to use a lot of discretion for when you speak, because when you reinsert yourself as a partisan voice, then things shift in the direction. But but I don't know. You know, I'm sure he'll become more involved in the campaign in 2020, probably go on the stump and campaign in that role, as like a lot of ex-presidents do. But I think he's probably smart to hold his fire. It's actually now it's kind of up to Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar or whatever else to become that person that is a leader of the party. Thanks, guys.
Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.